You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Good afternoon. Today we are... Today is the Erev Rishchidosh Adar. It's right before Adar. Today's class is in memory of Chava, Basal Yochem HaKoyim. So we're learning today should be for her memory. There was a very great rabbi named as the Ger Rebbe, the Beis Yisrael. He was actually one of those, the Rebbe that came from uh, Poland and moved the Ger dynasty to Israel. He was eventually buried in Israel. And uh, the Beis Yisrael used to say a very uh, interesting analogy when it comes to the concept of joy. And why are we talking about joy? Just a little, because as we mentioned, today is the eve of Rosh Chodesh Adar. Rosh Chodesh Adar is a time where it says, when the month of Adar comes, we have to increase in joy. That means we always have to be joyful. And when the month of Adar comes, we have to increase in joy. So he used to say the following uh, metaphor. He says, once in Poland, there used to be a little uh, supermarket where people would come in and everybody would buy goods, you know, a little uh, standalone market. And at the end of the day, of course, everybody was on their way back from work, making sure to buy their goods, their dry goods, or whatever it was for dinner. And outside there was this Polish ganiv, this Polish thief, that he wanted to make a few bucks because he knew at the end of the day the cash register is full of cash. And he wants to make a few dollars. So he calls over a little kid and he tells the little kid, here's a dollar, go buy a lollipop that's right by the counter. And I want you to suck the lolly in front of the storekeeper there and start fiddling with all the stuff there. What was his idea? This kid is going to go, start fiddling with all the things that are on the counter. You know, on the counter, especially in these little supermarkets, they have everything that's there on the counter that they want to sell. And the, the store owner is going to get annoyed at him, be chasing him out of the store. While the store owner is getting annoyed at the kid, this guy will run inside and empty out the cash register. And of course, that's what happens. The young kid comes inside and pays a dollar for one candy, but he starts taking another candy and another candy and another candy. And meanwhile, the store owner is getting all agitated and upset him, starts chasing the kid out the door, and he's chasing him out. The other guy comes in, empties out the cashier. What happens? He comes inside and he sees his whole cash register is empty. And what happens is that while he was chasing 25 cents, he lost hundreds of dollars. He says the same idea is also... A person comes a whole day after a full day's work. You're tired. You sometimes get down. And sometimes you start having this, you know, this uh, despondent type of feeling. What did I do today? Why did I do it? What am I accomplishing? Where am I? And we start feeling despondent about ourselves and what we've done and how we've accomplished it, if we've done anything about it. And what does it do in the end? It's empties, it drains the person from their energy and does not allow them to really concentrate on what's really important and does not allow them to really focus on what's really important in connecting with God in a joyful way. And instead, we're busy chasing the little things, which is the despondency about how our day, if it was up and down, instead of really enjoying the great things in life and enjoying the things that are sitting right in front of us and making sure that we utilize those things important. And therefore, when we talk about joy... Joy is not just a good thing to have. No, joy is not just, you know, some people are joyful, some people aren't. In fact, joy is, absol- is an absolute obligation. It is, if we don't have joy in our life, as we call it in Hebrew, it's called simcha sachayim. If you don't have the, the, the joy of life, I, I think there's a uh, French word that they use for it. Joy de vivre. Joy de vivre, right? Joy de vivre. Did I say it right? Joy de vivre. Joy de vivre. Joy de vivre. There you go. Just the joy of being alive. 
then automatically the way a person, if you stop eating and if you stop sleeping and if the person will cease to exist, if you don't have that joy and excitement in life, there's almost, you're not alive. It's only a matter that you're not dead. Why? Because there is no passion. There is no enthusiasm. There is no excitement. And why is it that joy is so, so important? The Alter Rebbe, when he talks about it in the Tanya, actually, we just read it in the Tanya, in the Daily Tanya a few days ago, the Alter Rebbe talks in general when he's combating the evil inclination. And he says, what's the first thing that the evil inclination tries to do to a person is make them despondent. And not despondent about materialistic things. In fact, the Alter Rebbe explains that while you're davening, the evil inclination's tactic is to tell you, ah, you're not davening properly, you didn't say all the words properly, you're getting distracted, and that's the evil inclination. You think, no, that's a good feeling. Why am I not my conscious telling me that I should daven appropriately? He says, no, 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 no. That's the evil inclination getting you despondent. And once you're despondent, you'd say, okay, if I'm not davening properly, I might as well daven at all. That's the tactic. Because the evil inclination is not going to come along and tell you don't daven. We'll say, eh, you know, you're not davening properly while you're losing concentration, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing that and the other, and therefore, what does the Alter ever say? Get rid of any despondency. Any type of despondency that's in a person automatically will knock a person down. He says, think about it. When you're wrestling somebody, who wins the wrestling match? Not the person that's stronger, the person that's quicker, the person who has more oomph, the person who has more talent, more excitement. Because the moment the person starts feeling that they're dragged down and wants to lay down and wants to like take it easy, you can be the strongest individual, but the other person will overcome you. And therefore, joy, excitement, and passion in life is not something which is, okay, if I have it, it's good if I don't. It's an obligation and it's something which you need in order to be able to survive. There's a fascinating story about a fellow, a Chabad Chassid from England. His name was Freddie Hager. Uh, Freddie Hager was a uh, big diamond merchant and he had a very close relationship with the Rebbe and the Rebbetson for many years from England. And one time he came to the Rebbe while he was, he was the head of the Diamond International of England, of the Merch of the Diamond Center, whatever you want to call it there in England. And he came to the Rebbe once and he came to the Rebbe and he was, he looked very down, very upset, very worried. And the Rebbe answered him, what's the ma- asked him, what's the matter? So he says, you know, I'm in a, not in a good position over there. I'm in charge of the diamonds. Business is not doing too well. And it's, he felt very down about it. And the Rebbe looked at him and said, with a very big surprise, and the Rebbe told him, Freddie, your approach, your negative approach to things is what worries me. You need to be positive regardless of the situation, and this will bring you to positive, positive instances in life. He went back to London, you know, they heard what the Rebbe said. It's a very nice, encouraging word. You have to be positive and whatever it may be. But, you know, it's tough. When life is tough, it's tough to be, uh, to be positive. He's in the lobby of the, uh, of the, what's it called, the Diamond Center. And he meets an American businessman who came to do business in buying diamonds in, uh, in London. And his name was William Goldberg. He was very successful, and he sees Hager, Freddie Hager, coming out, and he starts talking to him, and he remembers, you know, they're talking to each other, but he, Mr. Hager remembers the words that the Rebbe told him, always be positive, stay positive, always have this positive thing. When he met this fellow Goldberg, this fellow Goldberg was also always a beat, always positive, so it gave him a little of energy to be positive. 
And while they're talking, they're singing, they're doing, and he says, listen here, this guy, this businessman from America says, I'm in the market, I'm looking to spend. I want to invest in some nice diamonds. I'm looking to invest. Maybe he got something. And as he sees that he got something, he says, you know what? Actually, a few friends of ours, we invested in this really special platinum type of diamond. It's best here. Are you interested for $150,000? We can sell you a few of the pieces that we have, whatever was one piece. And like this, he made that very good sale. And that went on. And every single time, then they continued him just from that one meeting when he had this positive attitude, created a relationship they had with this American businessman. And for about 20 years, this person became his sole distributor of his diamonds, which gave him a very great success. But what he saw, and he said, mentioned himself, he says, I took that message that the Rebbe told me, that regardless of what my situation is, to put on that positive attitude and it was able to get me through any obstacle in life. The same ideas also we find. Hasidim used to say the terminology in the name of the Baal Shem Tev, joy. There's no mitzvah in the Torah that says you have to be joyful. It says if you didn't serve God with joy, then it's a problem. But the Torah doesn't say only on Yom Tev it says the you should be joyful. But in a regular day, it's not a prescribed mitzvah. But it's greater than any mitzvah. Despondency doesn't say in the Torah it's a transgression. It doesn't say it's an abrogation. But it's worse than any abrogation. Why? Because despondency is going to cause you to every other abrogation. Joy will get you away from doing any abrogation. So you see over here the, uh, the ability, and therefore the concept that Chassidim used to say, is that the evil inclination doesn't look for you to do something bad. He's not interested in you doing something bad. He's looking for you to be depressed and upset and despondent by the very fact that you did something bad. So he's looking at that moment of the after effects. You know, they say like an earthquake, the aftershocks are worse than the earthquake itself. The same idea is the evil inclination is more joyful. There's looking to gain more from the despondency after the abrogation than the actual abrogation itself. Because the actual abrogation itself, you'll do tshuva, you'll repent, and everything works out. But once you fall into that mode of despondency, depression, or, or giving up, all of a sudden there's nothing else you can do, there's no way out. Why is it so important that we're talking about this especially? Because as we mentioned, we're now entering the month of Adar, and the month of Adar is the mitzvah, is of joy. This is the season of joy, as we say. This is the season where we're told that we have to be able to increase in our joy, increase in our passion of positivity. And the question is, what is so unique about the month of Adar that all of a sudden you have to have this joy? In fact, this mitzvah to increase in joy is actually one of the last laws in Code of Jewish Law, where it says, Adar, when the month of Adar comes, one should increase in joy. Why is it that this month should have so much joy? You want to say, okay, Purim is a joyous holiday? Well, Nisan has the, month of, has the holiday of Pesach, which takes up eight days, and that's also a pretty joyful holiday. That's when we became a nation. Hanukkah takes up eight days in the month of Kislev. It's also pretty joyful. Sukkot is the time that God calls the moment of joy. And we don't find any of those months that are called, this is the time to increase in joy. What is so unique about the month of Adar that it is considered the month of joy? What is so unique about this month? And if we look into the details, as we're soon going to get to it a little more, is that when it came to the month of Adar, that Haman decided to make the time to destroy the Jewish people, what did Haman say? This is a perfect month. Why is it a perfect month? Because Moses died on the 7th of Adar. 
Must be a sad and depressing time. Sad and depressing time. This must be not good luck for the Jewish people. Let me make that decree to wipe them all out. At that moment, a voice of heaven came out and said, first of all, Haman, yes, there is no holiday yet, but when you're going to make it a holiday. Number two, the voice of heaven said, you forgot, Haman, that not only is the seventh of Adar the day that Moshe died, but it is also the day that Moshe was born. How is it possible that Haman knew the day of the birthday, knew the day of the yard sign of Moshe, but he didn't know the day of the birthday? Why didn't that come into the equation? So we'll get back to those questions in a moment, but let's talk about also what this week's Torah reading tells us about. This week's Torah reading begins by telling the Jewish people after Moshe comes down from Mount Sinai, the Jewish people are now um, moving on into the desert, and over here God tells Moshe about the building of the tabernacle. Now this Torah reading comes after the ascent of the golden calf, which we're going to read about in two weeks' time, because as we mentioned, the Torah is not in chronological order. And the building of the tabernacle was meant as an atonement for the sin of the golden calf. Because what did the sin of the golden calf do? Removed godliness from amongst the Jewish people. When the Jewish people received the Torah, they were on the utopia, the highest level of godliness. Forty days later, they sinned with the golden calf, which threw them all the way back to where they started from. So now they needed something to propel them to bring back godliness into this world, and that was going to be through the building of the tabernacle, eventually through the building of the holy temple. What was the purpose of the building of the tabernacle? was not only to bring godliness in the world, but it was also for the Jew to be able to feel a relationship and a closeness to God. How did a Jew do that? It was by bringing sacrifices. And every single day in the holy temple, they used to bring two sacrifices, at least two sacrifices. Those two sacrifices are called the carbon tumid, which means the constant, the reason why it's called tumid, because it was constant, it was consistent. No matter what happened, every single day, there were those two sacrifices brought, regardless of whatever happened. So the word is tumid, constant. Uh, Code of Jewish Law, and those who have been coming to the JLI course know that we spoke about last week, the Code of Jewish Law, which was authored by Rabbi Yosef Cairo. Rabbi Yosef Cairo, he was the one who was the first one to codify Jewish law in its four books that we have today. In fact, the Torah already made it in four sections. But to make it in the Rabbi Yosef Cairo wrote an explanation first on the Torah, and then he codified Code of Jewish Law into its sections that we have today. In the first section, which tells us about the laws of our day-to-day life and holidays. The second section, which tells us about the laws of interest and um, laws of shechita and things on, and that sort of food and that, those type of things and the laws of marriage and then the laws of business. Those are the four sections of Jewish law. The first section of Jewish law, Rabbi Yosef Cairo wrote his, uh, he codified it according to his books. At the same time, while Rabbi Yosef Cairo in Tzvat in Israel was writing and codifying his Jewish law, at the same time in Warsaw, there was another fellow, Rab Moshe Sorelish, who was writing his uh, code of codifi- codified his Jewish law. Was writing also a code of Jewish law. Once Rab Moshe Sorelish found out that the Beis Yosef, Rab Yosef Cairo, already wrote one, he stopped writing his for whatever reason it was and decided to only make additions or annotations on the actual one from Rabbi Yosef Cairo. That means Rabbi Yosef Cairo wrote it according to the Sephardic traditions because he based it. He basically took a majority of codifiers before him, which were Sephardic, majority were Sephardic, and therefore he codified it according to the Sephardic tradition. While Ramosha Sorelish, every place where he had an, uh, an insert or an addition or an annotation to it, he put on it what his opinion was. So if you look today 
In a regular code of Jewish law, you'll see in the block letters is Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the Shulchan Aruch, and then Hago, which means a note, is from Ramosha Sorelish of what the Ashkenazic custom is. Ramosha Sorelish, and that today, as Ashkenazic Jews, that's what we'd follow those customs according to the Ramah of those annotations that he put in to the code of Jewish law. Why am I saying this? Because in the Hadith Ramosha Sorelish begin the code of Jewish law, concerning also the concept of being tamid, that a person has to have constant, the concept of being constant. Meaning, and he starts off as follows, and he puts the verse, he begins the verse, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid. A person should always have God in front of them. What's the word? Tamid, constantly. Like from the word of the sacrifice that was brought, the carbon Tamid. And why does he say this? And he begins, and he's, this is the first law in the Code of Jewish Law from Ramosha Sorelish. The same way a person, when you're not sitting in front of a king, you don't sit or behave this way you're sitting in front of a king. When you're in front of a king, the things you do are thought out more, and you explain, and you're more respectful. So too, a person should always imagine as he's in front of God, and thereby behave differently. Therefore, the moment he wakes up, and he thanks God for being in this world, his, he should wake up with great haste to serve God. But what's the first thing he begins with? What's the word that he uses? Tamid. Constant. Always have God on your mind constantly. Fast forward to the end of Jewish law, code of Jewish law from Moshe Sorelish of the ways of life, the end of the holidays. What's that last holiday? If you go, the first holiday is Passover, right? So what's the last holiday? Purim. Not only is the last holiday Purim, but what happens on the leap year? On a leap year where there are two Purims, there's a small Purim, because in the first Adar, we make a small Purim. So the Ramosh Yisraelis says on the, fir- on the 14th day of the first Adar, even though it's not really Purim yet, and here what he says, we don't say Tachrun, which is the confessional prayer. However, there are those that say you should increase in food and drink. However, that's not our custom, but still in all, have a little bit more of a meal in order to fulfill the obligation of those that are stringent. And he finishes, if, finishes off with a quote from Proverbs, Toiv leiv mishtatamid. A good heart is constantly partying. So what is the last word of the code of Jewish law? Tamid. What is the first word of the Jewish law? Tamid, which means constant. What is the, why is it that the code of Jewish law waits until the last verse of Code of Jewish Law to tell us about the importance of being happy. Isn't happiness an ingredient that you need to have in everything you do? Shouldn't happiness be the first thing that he mentions in Jewish Law? He tells us that a person should be thoughtful and mindful that God is always with them. But if you look in the prayers, as we say right after the Baruch Shamar, a quote from Tehillim, Psalm 101, Ivdu es Hashem, serve God, besimcha with joy. Why isn't that means everything we do has a constant importance of serving God with joy. And if we look over here, why then doesn't the code of Jewish law begin with also telling me about joyful, but he waits until the last word and he says you should constantly be happy. The Rebbe explains of why these two are juxtaposed, if you want to call it juxtaposed for that matter, why it has the terminology tamid, constant to the beginning and constant at the end. Because over here, he's telling us a very important lesson of what we need to do, do of when it means to be constant. And he says as follows. The same way it is important for an individual to know 
that God is always in front of him. So too it is important for an individual to know that the way you have to serve God and the way you have to be conscious of God being in front of you should be out of joy, should be out of happiness. Because the way a person should serve God, yes, you have to have the awe of God, but not to be despondent or depressed about it, but you have to have served God with joy. And over here we see something very interesting. The way we understand it, and the way we appreciate the concept of joy, is that joy has to be something which is, as we call, that takes you from the beginning to the end. That means joy is something which is a necessary, is the ultimate goal to be joyful, but you also need to have what to be joyful about. There's no point of being joyful and being okay, happy, go lucky. That's not called being joyful. Joy means that there has to be something from it. There has to be something which is, gives you meaning for it. There has to be value to it. And in order for joy to be something which is of value, there has to be something which gives you the ability, the reason to be joyful. You have to have a purpose to be joyful. And that makes the joy that you have and the happiness something which is, number one, everlasting, and something which is true. The more you invest, the more purpose you realize in something, the more joy you'll see it as well. And therefore, he doesn't begin Code of Jewish Law by talking about the mitzvah of joy. He ends Code of Jewish Law with joy. Because he says, once you've already accomplished and you've done everything, and you've already utilized and you see purpose in life, that's when you come to the ultimate joy. When you wake up in the morning and you're happy, go lucky, you haven't done anything. What's the big deal to be joyful? That you woke up. Okay, that's step number one. But now do something, bring some purpose into it. And once you bring some purpose into it, then automatically that joy becomes something big greater. Even more so. Sometimes there's a joy that comes from inside of yourself. But that joy that comes from inside of yourself is can quickly dissipate. Because as quickly as you can find joy that comes from within, you'll also find problems that come from within. That's why if you recall, I'm sure you've heard of Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Famous psychologist who lived through the Nazi camps, and he was a student of Freud, who Freud said that every person deep down is bad and is only a cover-up and only everything else. And he came to the opposite when he saw people in the camps, that they had nothing left and they were still sharing their bread with one another, the last morsel of what they had and they shared with another person. He realized that deep down every person is good. It's only the circumstances of life that causes them to be selfish and materialistic and not think about another person. But what he saw even greater was that even in a person's darkest times, as long as they have what to live for, then there's already, a, there's already a what, there's a who, there's a purpose, there's a meaning. As long as there's a what, then you can already create a why. What does that mean? And where did he find a what? And where did people find happiness? Was when they helped somebody else. The greatest gift that a person can give himself is helping another person. The greatest joy that a person can get is by helping a person around them. That means when you help another person, as in the words of the Talmud, when a person gives charity, they think they're helping the poor person. The Talmud puts it, it's the same way that the calf enjoys the milk, but it's more the cow enjoys giving the calf than the calf enjoys nursing the milk. The concept is that the giver enjoys it more than the recipient. Well, you think you're doing that guy the biggest favor, but in fact, who's gaining more? You that's helping that person. But the desire to give, that's not enough. You don't wake up in the morning and say, okay, who can I help? 
You don't wake up in the morning and say, ah, I'm going to go to shul. The desire to sleep in bed sometimes overcomes the desire to do what's right. Why? Because the evil inclination has sometimes comes up with very creative arguments of why a person should stay in bed, why they shouldn't go help that person, why they should do A, B, and C, which is seemingly for themselves instead of the other person. So number one is, we have to create a reason. We have to create an urgency. If there's no urgency, we'll sit in bed. You know you have a alarm clock rings or not. You ever notice that if you need to be someplace, you wake up before the alarm clock. Why? Because in your, in your psyche, you created an urgency for it. So therefore, you don't need anybody else to wake you up. Because when there's an urgency for something, you automatically feel the guy of purpose. You automatically feel like, and that's why people like rewriting things on their calendar, crossing things off their calendar, and they, even though they have a doctor's appointment in two weeks from now, they're still thinking about it two weeks earlier because that gives them purpose and reason. Oh, I need to go to that doctor's appointment. What is it? It's because the way a person creates urgency or purpose in life is when they need to do something. Hashem gave us this by giving us mitzvahs every single day, giving us an urgency, giving us purpose, giving us reason. So therefore, when a person comes into his day and he recognizes what he has and he realizes the challenges that he has in life, and in order to be able to stand in front of God, to be able to have that constant reminder that God is in front of us, he puts himself in this urgency. He recognizes that he's here for a purpose. God put us here for a reason. Once I recognize that God put us here for a reason, I can be happy that God chose me to be able to do that reason. But step number one, is I have to have that reason. I have to have that urgency. I have to have that purpose. Step number two is automatically, once I have that purpose, once I have that reason, I can instill with it a joy and excitement that God chose me. At times, it becomes very challenging. We say, oh, why did God choose me? Like, what did Tevye say? Can't you choose somebody else after a while? But you say, why is it? But then we learn to appreciate. After a while, we see, wow, I'm the lucky one. You know, you see these people, especially in today's day with social media, and everybody has double lives, if you want to call it. The social media life, the Instagram life, where they put on filters and everybody looks happy and beautiful and everything else. And little do you know all the devils and skeletons that those people are dealing with. And only find out because later on on Instagram or social media, whatever it may be, you see that they're not that happy anymore and they're fetching and they're bemoaning, they're married, separated, whatever it may be, because they live this duplicity, this type of life, this high-rise life and thinking that everything is all good. While a person whose content is not about blowing themselves up in the air and showing all the filters and making all this fanfare, has more content in their life, is more content with their life, those are the people that are truly happy. So the people that look like they're truly happy, the Hollywood stars, really they have nothing in their life. What we see from over here is, and the important part of over here is, that when the Torah tells us, when the Torah explains to us, when a person works hard in serving God, a person dedicates himself with absolute subservience, you may say it's cumbersome, it's difficult, but the reward is so much greater, compensates that work, how much more so, because of this cumbersome work, and you're able to then enjoy it even more so. When do you really enjoy the fruits of your labor? When do you really enjoy what you made, enjoy dinner? when you have put in the effort and you enjoy the work that you put into it. The same idea we also find Hasidism explains.
A few weeks ago, we spoke about the Jewish people getting the Torah on Mount Sinai. Last week we spoke about has the Jewish people, when God came to them and God gave them the Torah, they said, we will do and we will listen. And then the Torah tells us that they were all standing underneath the mountain. What does it mean they were standing underneath the mountain? Didn't Moses tell them they shouldn't come close to the mountain? That's what we read in last week's Torah reading. And the Talmud explained something fascinating. That all of a sudden, Moses put, God, I'm saying, put the mountain on top of the Jewish people and said, either you follow the commandments or I drop the mountain on top of you. And that's why it says by Purim, Yehudim, the Jewish people, to reaffirm that acceptance that they started by Mount Sinai. Why did God do it? Whoops. They said Nasev and Ishma. Why did God have to force them with the mountain? What's the problem? And over here the commentaries explain, the Hasidism tells us, when a person says something, if a person agrees to doing something, okay, I do it because I want to do it. I'm happy about it. So when I'm excited about it, when I'm thrilled to do it, I'll do it. When it doesn't work out for me, okay, I decided to do it, so I can decide not to do it. But when God imposes it on the Jewish people, but when he forces you to do something, there's no way out. There's no way you can get out of it. You got to do it because you got to do it. It's not like you chose. What's the difference? The difference is that automatically I now have an urgency, I have a passion for it. There's no way that I'm going to get out of it. The moment that I automatically committed to doing something, whether I like it or not, I am automatically obliged to doing it. There's no way that I can get out of this. And therefore a Jew, by definition, has within him these two modalities in order to be able to accomplish something. You need, number one, the desire to do something and the purpose to do it. When God told us, do you want the Torah? And we said, Nasev and Ishma. We said, we're going to do and we will listen. That gave us the desire. Automatically now, and that's why we want to do it. But then he also gave us the purpose, the reason, the urgency to be able to do it. The urgency is what propels us to do it. The desire is what gets us to continue to do it. And therefore we have the joy that we have from doing a mitzvah. Gives us then the ability to totally appreciate it. And even though sometimes there are different uh, challenges in doing the mitzvah, but we have to remember, we have to do it. Because God is, whole, is counting us accountable for it. God put the mountain on us. And he said, if you don't do it, the whole world will fall apart. Every student knows that why do people wait for the last minute to do something? Because if not for the last minute, nothing ever gets done. Right? Because if we don't, the urgency of it gives us the excitement, the propelling to do it. Whereas they say in English, desperation is the cause for innovation. When you're desperate, you automatically find ways to do things. And this is what happens when it comes, and when thinking about Judaism, and when thinking about how God gave us the mitzvahs, he says, there's no choice. And because there's no choice, we're going to find a way to do it. Once we found a way to do it, then we create a desire and a love and excitement and passion towards doing it. A fascinating story is told in communist Russia. In 1946, right after the war, many Jewish people were able to escape Russia with uh, fake Polish passports. In fact, my great-grandmother was one of the people who were behind it with another few chassidim and Futafas and many others who forged Polish passports and this way got many chassidim out of Russia. Towards the last two trains that were coming out of Russia, the Russian 
uh, officers started catching on and they started catching people by the border and some of them were sent back. There was a chassid by the name of Rebero Gerevich who was caught trying to cross the border. His family actually already made it across and him they sent back. And he was sent into the labor camp. And in the labor camp his job was that he had to, you know, they were sewing. What they gave them to job was to sew the uniforms for the soldiers. And he was working there sewing because, in fact, right before the, right before the war, the joint, many Jews during communism, uh, didn't want to work, and especially religious Jews, didn't want to work on Shabbos. And a lot of things that the communism gave, communists gave the people to do was to sew things like this. They created material and things of that nature. So the joint sent many sewing machines to Russia and Jews on their own were sewing things. And on the black market, they were able to sell. I remember my grandmother telling me that she would sell sweaters and sold them on the black market. That's the way they were able to uh, support themselves you know, during communist times. But the bottom line is that they, had, they knew how to sew and they were very good at it. So his job was he was sewing. But he made up in his mind that even though he's in the labor camps in Siberia, he is not going to give up on observing Judaism, whatever it can be. And he kept kosher to whatever extent, you know, whatever he ate over there, he barely ate a few things. And, and he was sitting by his sewing machine one day, and, it comes, and, one, and it, he's there the first week, and it comes Shabbos. And he comes Shabbos, and he's not sewing. One week passes, they barely notice it. And he just sits there the whole Shabbos. He says he couldn't get his foot to push the metal on Shabbos to be able to start sewing. He says, I'm sitting in the camps. I'm not going to do it. The manager in charge noticed what's going on, came to him and said, Mr. Gurevich, I know exactly what you're doing. If you don't sew on Shabbos, if you don't start working and start producing on Shabbos, we're going to send you to a worse camp. This camp, at least you have a little bit of freedom. You have your food. You have your things that you can do. You go to the other camps, you get nothing. You're going to be out in the cold chopping wood every single day. So he's thinking to himself, what should I do? Over here, at least I can do some of the mitzvahs. So let me transgress Shabbos. Like this, I can do some of the mitzvahs. And, and instead of being sent to the labor camps, who knows where? And that's what he's thinking. He's making this rationale with himself. One second, they said it's not working. Hold on. And over here, he's thinking, what should he do? How should he, uh, how, how should he, um, just let me make sure. I'm sorry about the interruption, but there was some. Okay. So, so he says, he's thinking, maybe I should transgress the Shabbos, that they should be able to do it. And, it says over here, lies around. Let me just ask them. So he asks, so he's thinking, what should he do? And uh, so he's thinking to himself, yes, yes, or no, no. And finally, he says to himself, listen here, God put me here. If God wants me to observe Shabbos, he'll find a way for me to observe Shabbos. I'm not going to take it at my hands to desecrate the Shabbos. I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to make sure to do it the way I have to. And he just says, you know what? I'm not going to push the pedal on Shabbos. If that guard wants to send me to Siberia... Now chopping wood, so be it. That's what God's decision is. All of a sudden, the guard comes over, the manager says, you didn't produce this Shabbos, I'm taking you to the supervisor. Takes him to the supervisor, 
And the supervisor asks him, Gurevich, what's going on over here? How come you didn't produce on Shabbos? So he says, I'm sorry, it's my Shabbos and I made up, I'm not going to produce on Shabbos. They're thinking, they're talking to each other, they speak to each other like this, like that. And finally they call him over and they say, listen here, there's a warehouse. We need a guard to protect the warehouse. Your good job is going to be now to protect the warehouse from now on. And like this, you won't have to desecrate the Shabbos and you'll be there on Shabbos. He looks at them in amazement. He's trying to figure out what's going on over here. So he asks, he says, do you mind explaining? He says, listen here. We have guards now watching the warehouse. But every day things are missing. Who would be the better person to guard an honest person, a person who's not willing to break his religion? The key, the fact that he decided to stay strong in his religion, stand strong in the passion and realize the urgency of what he had, and to have a joy in it and not allow it to decipher and not allow him to destroy him, that's what gave him the ability to stand up to the challenges. The urgency, the purpose, the recognition and the understanding that something is important, we have to do our job. Do it with enthusiasm, God will already work at the next. That's one way of achieving joy. But here's another way of achieving joy. Our sages tell us in the Talmud that the same way when the month of Av, which is the saddest month in Jewish history, comes in, one has to decrease in joy, so too when the month of Adar comes, we have to increase in joy. What does it mean to increase in joy? We know that throughout the times, we say Shabbat Shalom, Chag Sameach, Mo'adim Simcha, pick your type of genre that you say it in. But whatever you say, you're always talking about wishing people good day, good night. You always want people to be happy birthday, happy Yom Tif, whatever it may be. There's always things that are happy. If we're happy all day and one day, what is it that the month of Adar is so important that we have to be joyful about? So we look in the Megillah, which tells us about the story of Purim, and it tells us this is the month that changed and transformed from sorrow to joy. What is it? What happened in the month of Adar that all of a sudden, as we mentioned in the beginning, that all of a sudden this month comes, we have to increase in joy. And it's not only one day, the day of Purim, but the entire month to the extent that the Talmud tells us that if a Jew has a a court date with a non-Jew, the time to do it is in the month of Adar. The entire month is a month of good luck. In fact, talking about before, we mentioned about different customs and uh, things that were mentioned. Tzavos Rabbi Yudah Chassid, one of the great... uh, it talks of uh, one of his things that he mentions there that there are certain months that people don't get married in the beginning of the month. Generally, the beginning of the month, because the moon is very small, so it's not a sign of good luck. So therefore, we don't get married to many people. It used to be that they didn't get married in the beginning of the Jewish month. However, the month of Adar, you can get married in the whole month because the luck is good and it's a great time. What's so special about the month of Adar? It's one day is Purim. You have Sukkot is seven days, Pesach is eight days, Hanukkah is eight days. And we don't say the whole month is special. It comes to Purim, all of a sudden it's so special. And this is because some want to say, well, because Purim takes us to Pesach. What's so special about Pesach? You have the time when the Jewish people were taken out of Egypt. So you have two straight months of joy, so that gives us extra joy. But what happened? What's so all of a sudden, what's so special about it? What causes the joy? What's so special about the month of Adar? comes the seventh day of Adar. What's the seventh day of Adar? It's the day that Moshe was born. And the day that Moshe was born is a special day which that energizes the month of Adar to be a special day. For example, look in the contrast. If in the month of Av, why is it a sad month? Because there's one day that we're sad. There's one day that was the destruction of the temple. 
And therefore, that whole month, you have to decrease in joy. So if you go on the flip side, there's one day that's happy in the month of Adar, which that causes us to increase in joy. What we see from over here is the concept that we still, that we're taking this one month that gives us the ability to take and utilize this one day which brought in and instilled within the entire month joy and happiness. Like the words of the Talmud, as we mentioned before, when it happened that the... Um, when it happened that the month that, that, uh, that Haman chose to kill the Jewish people, he saw that this was the day that Moses died, and he did not know that this was the day that Moses was born. And because of that, he chose the month of Adar, which this month later became, as we mentioned, the most joyous month for all the Jewish people. And we see that this is a month that's so unique, and therefore we're happy the whole month. But what is it that makes it so special? And that is because he did not know the day that Moshe was born. What's so unique about Moshe's being born? That Moshe was so great for the Jewish people that the very fact that he was born, his omen, his luck of Moshe, because it says when Moshe was born, the entire home became full of good. That means you were able to see, or full of light, that Moshe was called in fact Tov and Tuvia by his parents. The one that called him Moshe was Batya. But Moshe himself was a person who brought luck to the Jewish people once he was born. The Jewish people's savior was born. And this brought, so the entire month is cherished with the luck of Moshe. And therefore, when we talk about the month of Adar, why it's so unique and what's so special about it is because every single day is connected with the seventh of Adar, with the special day of Moshe. And that brings joy and good luck to the rest of the month. But then still one person may argue and say, Yes, it's a beautiful thing that Moshe was born, but Moshe also died. The same thing that Haman argued. He died on the seventh of Adar. Why still is his luck so special that this changes the month of Adar for a special day? And this comes to tell us that, and we look what happened with Haman. And we go back to the question that we asked before about Haman. The Talmud tells us that when, you, when the lottery fell out on the month of Adar, he was excited and elated because Haman, Haman said, Moses died, it must be the best luck. And therefore, even he set the day, think of it, when did he set the war to be against the Jewish people? The 13th of Adar. What's seven days after the 7th of Adar? The 13th. What's seven days significance after a person dies? Shiva. What did Haman say? I'm going to wait until the end of Shiva of Moshe. Jewish people are mourning the passing of Moshe. What can be the saddest time for the Jewish people when they're mourning the, the, Moshe's passing? And therefore he picked the 13th of Adar. The question is, it doesn't say in the Torah the day Moshe died. It doesn't say in the Torah the day Moshe died. Where do you know the day Moshe died? It's because if you make the calculation when the Jewish people, when Aaron died, and you make the calculation when how many months before the Jewish people went into the land of Israel, you come to the conclusion and you know what day it is that the Jewish people went into the land of Egypt, uh, when the day Moshe died. That means it's all from the oral law. The same exact passage of the oral law that says when Moshe died, says when Moshe was born. So what happened? Haman was only told part of the Talmud. He didn't know the first half of the Talmud. He didn't know that Moshe was born on that same exact day. Not only that, in the way the Talmud puts it, it says he didn't know that on the seventh day Moses was born, on the seventh day Moses died. And then it continues to say 
that his birth atones for his death. What's going on over here? How is it that Moses, that Haman didn't know what was going on? Did he know what was going on? What was his calculation? So one simple obvious answer is that the day that Moses passed was something that everybody knew. Moses was the leader of the Jewish people for 40 years. Even if Haman didn't know the intricacies of the oral law, it probably everybody knew from generation to generation the Jewish people had this great leader. It was only about 1,000 years before him. And people knew that there was Moses and he died in this and this day. Moses was a leader for 40 years of the Jewish people. People knew about it. It was in the desert. It went on. Joshua took his place. On the other hand, when Moses was born, where was he born? In a bunker in Egypt because they didn't want that the Egyptians should know that he was even birthed. For three months he stayed at home that nobody should even know that he was born. So the actual date of his birth maybe wasn't so well known. But still we know the very fact that the Talmud juxtaposes the two together and says he didn't know that the same day that Moshe died, Moshe was born, in that order, saying the same day Moshe died, Moshe was born, what's the Talmud telling us? Putting first the day that he died, and only afterwards telling us the day that he was born. Now over here the Talmud's telling us a revolutionary thing. Over here we're coming up with a new idea. But over here there's a birth that's after death. What does this mean? What did Haman think? What did Haman believe? Haman had in his idea, Moses died. The Jewish people have no leader anymore. Moses has no effect on the Jewish people. Moses has nothing to do with the Jewish people anymore. He's dead. He died on the seventh of Adar. I can destroy them. There'll be nobody to protect them. What Haman didn't realize that the day that Moses died, Moses was also born. That there's a Jewish leader in every single generation because who was the one that saved the Jewish people from the plot of Haman? was Mordechai. The Talmud tells us, Mordechai Mordechai in his generation was like Moses of his generation. Mordechai was the Moses of his generation. So was there a physical Moses? Maybe not. But there's an inspiration of Moses continued to be stronger than ever before, even after Moshe had died. Like the Talmud uses the terminology that once there was a sage that responded to a Talmudic question and they responded to him and he said, Moshe, you answered beautifully. But his name was a Moshe. His name was Ravacha. His name was Ravina. Why do you say Moshe, you answered? Because one who teaches Torah becomes Moshe. There's a Moshe in every generation. There's a Moshe that continues to lead the Jewish people in every time and every age. So from Haman's perspective, Haman's knowledge was Moses is gone. But from the Jewish perspective, what the Talmud is telling us, Moses actually was really born. Because right after Moshe passed physically, spiritually, his soul in every single generation, there is a Moses. And therefore the Talmud uses the terminology, the day of birth atones for the day of passing. What does it mean the day of birth atones for the day of passing? That the rebirth of Moshe, meaning the rebirth, the, the generations after Moses who continue to go in Moshe's footsteps and Moshe continues to lead them even after he passed. Physically, but his spirit continues to teach the Jewish people and is there for the Jewish people. That means he is really born. And that's where, that's where Haman went wrong. That's the reason for joy. Because Haman missed out the point. He didn't realize what the Jewish people are all about. That just because Moses passed, not everything ceased to exist. On the contrary, Moses passed in the physical body, but his spiritual entity continued to exist. Stories told. The guy tells the story that he met this fellow in Israel. His name was um, Aaron Ruveni. 
calls up his rabbi. This is in 19, uh, I'm sorry, 20, 2018. Calls up his rabbi desperately crying. He says, yeah, I, need my, I need your help. He says, what's going on? He says, my brother-in-law, after many years of not able to have a child, they finally had two children. And just now the eight-year-old daughter had some type of virus started throwing up. They took it to the hospital and within a few hours she was gone. Now they're only left with one child. She's now older at over 40 years old. Nobody wants to do infertility treatment and they're totally destroyed. Their life is totally despondent. And what can you say to such a tragedy? He goes there to pay a shiva call. They had a special meal at the end of the shiva. What can you say to such a person after so many years, 20 years trying to have a child, they lose their child. But that's what the story was. And they, life moves on, as you say. 20 months later, he receives a phone call from the same guy. He says, I'm calling to invite you to a bris. What happened? After they lost this child, she was 45 years old. Nobody wanted to do any infertility treatments for her. She gave birth to a child naturally, a baby boy. But here's the amazing thing. The day that she, the day that the child passed away was on the day of Gimel Tammuz. Gimel Tammuz is the day of the Rebbe's yard site. The day the baby was born was Yud Aleph Nisan, the day of the Rebbe's birthday. Uh, so he says, you see, the birth came after the passing. Very, t- Haman was happy that it was the day that, that Moshe died. And therefore he thought, that's it, I got the Jewish people. But he didn't realize that right away there was a Moshe born. Every single generation of Jewish people, there's a Moshe there that is there guiding and helping the Jewish people, meaning that the God is always watching over the Jewish people. That in itself is what gives us the ability and gives us the reason to be joyful. That never should we think that we are ever in the hands of the enemies. Never should the enemies think, look, their leader is gone. There's nothing that nobody's going to protect them and nobody's going to watch them. That's exactly what Haman said. What the story of Purim and why Adar is such a joyful month because it teaches us and it invigorates us that we have a Moshe that is born in every single time and in every, every single age that will forever protect the Jewish people as we've seen in the past 3,000 years. This is the energy that the month of Adar gives us. This is the joy that the month of Adar gives us. The urgency to recognize that we have a mission in this world. The ability to recognize that there is a Moshe who is leading us and guiding us and that we are able to overcome any enemy out of every time. It is for this reason, it's not by Pesach that we celebrate. While it may be the birth of the nation, it doesn't say when Pesach comes around, have a joyful month or Hanukkah or Tishrei. Because the unique quality about Purim was that the Jewish people came to their own understanding and appreciation to recognize that they're forever protected. This protection we still have, and this is the reason for our joy. When a person recognizes not only the protection, the general protection, not only in the the accumulative protection, but also in our own personal life, in our own personal struggles and challenges, recognizing that these struggles and challenges are there to show us and validate the importance of why we're here. This gives us the joy, the ability, and the courage to overcome it and walk out of it with joy.